On behalf of myself and the whole company of Christian preachers since Christian preaching began, I apologize to Thomas and his 11 companions for describing them as spineless scaredy cats who never really get it right, at least not until Pentecost. We have delighted in descriptions of Peter's impulsiveness, rock-headedness, James and John's foolish ambition, Judas's inability to resist the voice of the devil or the lure of money, and Thomas. Simon Peter isn't the only one who picks up a name early on and still carries it. Don't forget, doubting Thomas. As one of my old New Testament professors, Heinz Gunther, memorably, memorably said about the 12 disciples as we meet them in the Gospels, no one could be as stupid as the disciples. So today I want to apologize to our ancestors in faith. We owe them better than we've been giving them for almost 2,000 years. The first people who follow Jesus follow him into a whole new world. Many of them leave the entire world that they know and love behind, far behind them. From day to day, they don't know what will happen around them, among them, to them. They experience extremes of emotion with Jesus, joy, shock, awe, confidence. They witness miracles. Some of them see revelations from heaven with Jesus. Jesus says things that warm their hearts and things that fill their heads to bursting. He also says things that don't make any sense at all. Maybe they will understand someday, but that depends on them remembering what Jesus has said because he says so much. They hear Jesus praised, hailed as the Messiah, betrayed, cursed, mocked. They see him killed. By Maundy Thursday, they're scraped raw. They don't know what to feel, how to respond to Jesus, what to do. Mute and numb. On Thursday night, Peter lashes out with confidence, then quakes with fear and denies he knows Jesus. The others run away. And when the Friday noonday darkness fades away, the lights don't come back on for them. John says they're hiding because the Judeans and their leaders may come for them now they've done away with Jesus. That's, that's good reason to hide. And when we don't know what to feel or do, fear takes over. Today, we might say they're on the edge of post-traumatic stress disorder. Their experience of Jesus is enough trauma for anyone to absorb. Add the events of the last week, the last two days, and then Jesus appears out of nowhere. The door's still locked, probably shutters on the windows too. Who could believe it? He offers them peace, breathes peace, shows them his hands and his side, See, same body, 
still wounded, but alive again. They believe. Well, of course they do. Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit onto them and into them, ordains them to preach the good news of forgiveness, and the church, as far as John is concerned, the church is born. But one charter member is missing. Now, the word doubt is not in this story anywhere, nowhere in the Greek. Thomas isn't a doubter. He is a realist, a struggling believer. It's in his nature to want to know before he trusts. And he knows Jesus died. He knows the dead stay dead. And maybe he's been out and around Jerusalem, and he knows the world didn't come to an end when Jesus died. He has seen the world go on as if Jesus never was. His overwrought friends say they've seen Jesus alive. Unbelievable. Unless I see the wounds, touch them, stick my fingers in, I won't trust your words or you. This isn't intellectual doubt. This is a perfectly sensible refusal to accept that the impossible has happened. The impossible may have been possible when Jesus was alive, but Jesus is dead. So until Thomas can be sure, his friend's message is truthiness, not truth. It's no better than fake news. And a whole week goes by, no one can convince Thomas, and there's no sign of Jesus. But then, on Sunday evening. Now the NRSV, like most English Bibles, has Jesus say to Thomas, Do not doubt, but believe. That's not what it means. It's do not be unbelieving, literally unfaithing. This isn't about intellectual assent to the idea of a risen Jesus. It's not about agreeing that the impossible is in fact possible. This is about trust. Giving your life to one who is trustworthy and true. When Thomas says, unless I see the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe until I know it's real and it's really my Jesus. I won't. I can't trust. So Thomas isn't a model doubter. He's a model disciple. He's also a legendary disciple. The story says, Thomas lives a long life, full of risk and adventure. He goes further out into the world beyond the Roman Empire than any other apostle. In South India, Roman Catholics and members of the Martoma churches name Thomas as the founder of their faith, and they honor the place where they say he died in A.D. 72. Statues of Thomas always show him with a shepherd's crook in one hand and a Bible in the other. The Bible is open and it's inscribed with Thomas's words, my Lord and my God. And the legend of Thomas keeps on growing 
In 2004, when the Indian Ocean tsunami came to shore in Chennai, the Cathedral of St. Thomas and the museum holding his relics were spared. Everything to the north and the south was flooded. So if you go there today, they'll tell you Thomas saved his church. He's still at work in the world. But let's wind back about 1970 years, back to Jerusalem, right after Thomas professes the faith that he will live by and die for. This is one of those moments in John's Gospel when Jesus looks behind the first disciples and talks to us. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have come to believe. That's you and me. Then John chimes in to tell us he has written his gospel so we may come to believe and have life. And he doesn't just want us to trust that he's telling the truth. He wants us to trust Jesus. John's book can't give us life. Only Jesus can do that. And of the four gospels, only John writes about the nails and the spear, the wounds. Only John's gospel makes sure Jesus tells his friends or shows his friends it's really him. It's Jesus as he has been before and is still Jesus. And he invites them to look and even to touch. So Jesus isn't a ghost, not some spirit finally freed from flesh and bones. Jesus isn't a product of overactive imagination. John wants us to know Jesus is real. And we know John doesn't write about Jesus' birth. Matthew and Luke do that. John's gospel begins telling us the word of God, God's creative power, God's wisdom, God's self became flesh, human. And according to John, Jesus doesn't leave his flesh, his body behind when he rises. He's still who he was and has always been. Now we could argue forever about the physical and metaphysical impossibility of it all, but here's John's point. If we want to know God, really know God, and know God's will and God's intention for us and all creation, we can see all we need to see in Jesus. And this is the discovery, John says, invites our trust and gives us life. And Thomas puts his trust, finds his life and gives it back to a wounded Lord and God. We worship and we do our best to live in harmony with a God who has been wounded, changed by human sin and death. Wounded, but not defeated. This morning, I don't know how there can be room in this world or a place in God's purpose or a place within God for the sudden deaths of 15 young hockey players and their coaches and a broadcaster and the injuries 
of 14 more. And the grief in communities all over the West and indeed across Canada and into the United States. For so many of these young men had two families, their birth families and their billet families. Today I only know God knows that grief. God knows their pain and the depth of their wounds. No doubt a lot of people are looking for proof that God is with them and not against them, and our hearts go out to them, though we can't reach out and touch them. But we can pray. We can pray to our wounded God. Yesterday, our moderator, Peter Bush, posted a prayer on Facebook, and it's on the Glenview Facebook page and the Presbyterian Church Facebook page, praying on behalf of all of us Presbyterians in Canada. These are his words. God, your son wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. We weep over the Humboldt Broncos team members and coaching staff who died in the bus accident Friday. We lift up before you family and friends, the community of Humboldt, the other teams in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League. Be the God who sees and hears their cries of sorrow and loss. We lift up before you first responders, doctors, nurses, others who were at the scene or are providing care to the survivors. Be the God who guides hands and claims minds in the midst of crisis. We pray for those who were injured, that they would be healed of their injuries, both physical and psychological. Be the God of healing and hope. God, we do not have words to adequately express the ache in our hearts. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We can pray such things as this. In times of pain and sorrow. Because we pray through Jesus. Who lived, who died and rose for us. And bears the wounds of human suffering. Of human pain who shares our grief. We trust and we pray to a wounded God. Glory to God.